Welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and I'm joined in the studio by Claire. Hello, everyone. And Chris. Hello, Stu. And we have all brought in some interesting science-y type stories this week. I'm actually going to be talking about what is the smallest creature. I was thinking about tardigrades and how cool tardigrades oh. are. I often how... think about tardigrades and how cool they are. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, you know... Moss and lichen, do you think? There must be tardigrades crawling around in there. Oh, tardigrades obviously are water bears and they're those very cute microscopic Mm -hmm. little like, they look a bit like vacuum cleaner bags but with little faces. Yeah. Yeah. And like I don't often think about moss and lichen and tardigrades but I will now. But that's where they live. Is it? Yeah, mostly. And on the moon. And well, all over the place. But um, but that got really? me thinking how, how many small little things there are and what's the smallest animal oh, around. Wow. So I'm going to talk about that later mm. in the show. Love Claire, it. what are you going to talk about? Well, we are joined this week by Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft from the University of Melbourne. And um, she's going to take us through the newest IPCC report into climate change. It's a special report on climate change and land use. Um, and it is long. And um, not many people read it um, end to end. So that's why Lyndon's here to give us the rundown. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, stay tuned for that later in the show. has been another IPCC report delivered to us all about climate change. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but I haven't read it end to end, that's for sure. So instead, I have invited the awesome and wonderful Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, climatologist, lecturer at University of Melbourne. Lyndon, welcome to Lost in Science. Great to be here, Claire. Let's start with what the IPCC is. Yeah, sure. So the IPCC, you hear that acronym bandied around, and I think even some climate scientists 
struggle to remember what it is. It's a bit like CSIRO. You're like, well, what does the I stand for again? <laughs> Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this right. is a panel that was set up in the 80s, in 1988, with the World Meteorological Organization and the UN's Environmental Program. So all countries that are members of either of those organizations, pretty much all countries of the world, are a part of this. And the goal of the IPCC is to collect the best understanding we have of climate change, its impacts, the science behind it, possible options for addressing it, possible risks and adaptation and mitigation, right? So it doesn't actually do new science. The IPCC don't do new science. Their job is to review all the other science that's done all around the world and pull it together in one piece of information. So the world has the best understanding of what's going on. So it's it's like a, the literature review, like, you know, the mother of all literature reviews. Yeah, it's the mother of all literature reviews <laughs> in every sense of the word, in that scientists from all over the world are involved. You have to apply to join the IPCC, even though it's voluntary. I mean, hopefully your organisation where you work, your government organisation or your university realises what a privilege it is to be selected as one of the best climate scientists. And it's not just climate scientists. There's social scientists as well and environmental economists and people who can look at this massive problem from every different angle. So you you volunteer to take part. There's quite a few Australian scientists who have been involved in the last 30 or so years, and it's a lot of meetings, a lot of late-night teleconferences, lots. <laughs> I've got a few f- colleagues at the moment who are going through the process, and they've just come back from a big meeting in France where it's go, 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 and then they have midnight meetings once every few weeks with all their different co-authors, and there are lots of different sections. And so the IPCC... Initially, its mandate was to bring together every six years or so a giant assessment report with a few different sections about what are we seeing, what are the climate models predicting for the future, how can we understand what's natural and what's human-induced, and different adaptation strategies or different things that we can do to help minimise the risks. So we have these. The last one was the fifth assessment report, and the next one, the sixth assessment report, I think is coming out in 2021. But then they also have special reports that are focused on particular topics. So they had one that was about the difference between 1.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels, so if the globe warmed by about 1.5 degrees, versus what would happen if it warmed up to 2 degrees. We're at about 1.1 degree above um, pre-industrial, pre-fossil fuel burning times. So this is a one of those special reports and I can imagine, you know, when you say you have to get together all of the information including all the impacts and I imagine there would be a lot of things to read. Yeah, absolutely. So this report that came out last month, it's about climate change and land essentially. This is it's like a two-parter, I think. This one that's come out in August is about climate change and land and then there's another one that's coming out in September about climate change and the oceans and ice or the cryosphere which is the ice ice world, the component of the earth that's made of ice. Uh, So this one is about the land. Mm. And I I think there were about 107 authors. It took them around two years to pull all this information together, 7,000 different documents that they read and reviewed and summarised. And then what happens is you write a draft or these authors write a draft and then it goes out to review and anyone who's an expert in those fields can help review it. And so they had something like 28,000 separate comments that they had to incorporate to make sure that this document really is our best understanding of what's happening to the land and 
how the land fits into the climate change picture. So when you talk about, I guess, climate change and land, like what what are they really talking about? Well, the way I understand it, and I'm, I should say I'm not a land climate expert, but the way I understand what I've read of the report is that it's looking at the role of human impact on the land. So it's about 70% of the surface of the land of the earth, right? Which you kind of think, oh, the land, it doesn't make up that much of the world, but it's everywhere that we live, you know. I don't know how many mermaid listeners there are. Probably not a lot, but it's <laughs> everywhere. There might be some there people be on some. boats. Hi to everyone on boats, but they probably come back to land afterwards. They probably come back to land. We get the vast majority of our food from land. We get all of our fresh drinking water from land. And 70% of the land that exists in the world has been touched by us. Wow. Or is being touched by us at the moment. So this report was looking at what role does that play in either exacerbating climate change, making it worse, or sort of offsetting it and what what have we seen in the past and what might it look like in the future. So what is this report actually telling us then? Well, I guess it's telling us probably all the things that you expect it to tell us already, that we are over-exploiting the land. There's a lot of soil that is being lost. More soil is being lost than soil is being rejuvenated. From something like rainfall, like yeah, from, so you're from erosion. This is the thing. It's all it's all a bit of a feedback loop, right? Mm-hmm. So with climate change, the weather patterns that we're seeing are changing. So it's raining where it maybe wasn't raining so much anymore. We've got our climate zones shifting. So they're regions that are deserts are kind of moving or expanding. We're getting heavier rainfall events, which can often make runoff, more runoff, right? So more soil is, is being, being lost, lost that, that way. way. Uh, I think the report also mentioned a, an increase in dust storms and these kinds of things. But it's kind of a two-way, it's a bit of a feedback loop because you've got climate change affecting the way that the soil works and the land works, but then you've also got changes to the soil help like affecting climate change if that makes sense right i mean soil um can hold a lot of carbon as Mm -hmm. well right and so if you've got less less um soil on the top of the earth then you've got less ability to be able to hold that that carbon or be that carbon sink yeah that's right that's how i kind of understand it and it is this bit of a it's a bit of a two-way street, right? It's a lose-lose situation because we've got climate change making the land more degraded. We've got these weather patterns changing, so heavier rainfall events. I mean, there's more runoff and more soil being taken away and we get more dust storms and areas that are getting drier. They're they're becoming more like deserts. Fertile areas becoming less fertile, which is called desertification. It's another fancy word there. For an awful thing. <laughs> For an awful thing. But then, so that's climate change is doing that to the soil and to the plants. But then also when that happens, the plants are less able to help mm. us combat climate change. There are fewer nutrients in the soil and the plants aren't able to soak up as much CO2. And so that makes climate change worse, if that makes sense. So it's this kind of, it's a pretty nasty lose-lose situation. And the report talks a lot about how much has already happened, what we're seeing in, you know, it's a bunch of scary statistics really about how much land is being used too much uh, for pastures and for heavy cropping and unsustainable agricultural practices. And how about in terms of what sort of agricultural practices we use and what we choose to grow on the land that we have? Yeah, this is a really interesting thing, particularly when when we think about 
keeping our carbon dioxide or our greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide, but methane and nitrous oxide and other kinds of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, trying to minimise those. We often think about, oh, electricity, we need to move towards solar or wind power, those kinds of things. But there's lots of different sectors that contribute to the amount of greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere. And the agricultural sector contributes about a quarter of what we see. So land use from uh, grazing of different animals, mainly cows, uh, and then also crops, heavy agricultural crops that need a lot of irrigation and these kinds of things, that can really add up to the, the emissions that are because of human behaviour in the atmosphere. Does that mean we should start looking at what sort of different foods we can produce, what's going to be a, I guess, a better agricultural system and um, better food production for us? or I, th- I think so. The authors of the report are very clear they don't want to tell people what to eat, but the science is telling us that, A, we already waste a lot of food, like a third of the food that is produced or that is grown is lost or wasted globally. That is an incredibly high number. It is. 30%. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And also in the last 40 years or so since the 60s, we've seen a doubling per person in the amount of meat and vegetable oil that is produced. So it's essentially rich people are eating more meat and more fat and it's bad for them, right? Because obesity, there's 2 billion overweight and obese people in the world, while people in their developing countries, which other countries that are sadly being mostly affected by these changing in weather patterns and reduction in the nutrient level of the soils, are there's a lot of uh, undernourished people in the, those parts of the world. So I think having a a real look at what we eat, there's lots of different there's lots of different discussions around that. I'm not pretending that it's a simple problem, but this report is suggesting that we need to think and change, think about and change the way that we use the land, A, because it's making climate change worse, and B, because we can't stick to the Paris Agreement goals, the targets that we've set as a planet, without considering this sector. What are some of the, I guess, recommendations and take-homes that the authors have left us with? My reading of it is that they've tried quite hard to give some near-term goals that we can work towards and some long-term strategies. And again, I mean, you, you probably know them. It's being sustainable. It's, it's using sustainable practices. The report says that the quicker, and I think all the IPCC reports say this, the earlier we can act, we need to act right now, right now, and all of the ideas that we have need to be scaled up massively. So reduction in meat consumption, uh, reforesting of a lot of areas. I've heard of some great examples where they're suggesting that places in the tropics in particular where you could revegetate the land for forests and then incorporate into the forests some cacao plants, right? So you've got instead of uh, homogenous or like one type of one like type of crop. Type yeah, instead thing. of a monoculture type thing, you've got naturally variating plants that you can still get money from, right? You can still harvest those the the cacao and still and still earn a living, but that's improving biodiversity. This is the thing. A lot of the suggestions that they're making in this report are win win. Like it's co co benefiting. It's good for the planet and it's good for economies and it's good for societies as well. So Thinking about a sustainable shift in agriculture, reduction in meat consumption, um, using of biofuel crops, using using those sustainably, but investing in those kinds of areas. There's lots of advice in here for policies 
they do suggest that it needs to be done at a local level. I mean, people need to make decisions at a community level and then that also needs to be supported, obviously higher up the chain. But having a every country needs to do this is probably not the way that change is going to happen, unfortunately. Well, Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, thank you so much for coming in and talking us through the IPCC report, the special report on climate change and land use. And um, it would be wonderful to get you in to talk us through uh, the next instalment on um, the oceans as well. Always, always a pleasure to be here, Claire. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Everyone's favourite microscopic animal, the tardigrade, was recently a passenger to the moon. Did you guys, you guys heard about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm its number one fan. Yeah, wasn't was... an Israeli spacecraft crash-landed with a bunch of cargo of tardigrades? Yeah, and human tissue samples for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it was hu- human tissue samples and tardigrades living and, but that, they forever just, they just on wanted the moon, to, right? Mm. Yeah. They just wanted to land them on the moon. They didn't. That was it. That was, <laughs> that was the end of the project. And they crashed, so they didn't really... Although they did land, well, I guess. Well, they did land. Yeah. I guess they didn't say exactly how they were going to land. No, I guess. So mission well, accomplished? I'm, sh- I'm sure their mission 
their mission plan probably had a landing. Changed a bit. Yeah. Is there um, a bit, you know the movie The Martian where they bring Matt Damon home? We have a dramatic dramatization where they try to bring the tardigrades home from the. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have to send like a big ship or anything. You no. just sort of send a scoop, yeah, <laughs> scoop them up. Um, this, uh, there is a theory that tardigrades may have already made the trip to the moon. Um, the idea is that large enough asteroids hitting the Earth uh, hundreds of millions of years ago may have picked up hitchhikers on their way as they skimmed off the planet's surface and scooped up. Uh, tiny creatures and taking them to the moon and to other parts of the solar system potentially. So you never know. And then there's the tardigrades from um, Star Trek Discovery. But we won't go into them. No, well, yeah, um, that's that's a totally fictional yes. uh, interpretation. But the almost indestructible tardigrade got me thinking. How small are the smallest animals? Because tardigrades are tiny little animals. They've got eight legs and they walk around and eat things. Um, but they're pretty small, but they're giants compared to the really tiny animals because tardigrades are about half a millimetre. So you could see them with a reasonable sort of microscope. Um, the smallest vertebrates are massive compared to that, though. Um, so uh, they're about 10 times that size. So a carp family fish, there's a fish that's in the carp family that's seven millimetres long when it's fully grown. That's wow. quite tiny. Um, and there's a tiny frog from South America that is an average of 7.7 millimetres at full size. My goodness. So the biggest ones are sort of eight and a bit millimetres, but on average they're about 7.7. But to get to really small animals, we have to go to the invertebrate world, uh, which brings us to the arthropods. And arthropods are obviously the animals with exoskeletons. Like insects and spiders and... Crabs. Insects and arachnids and crustaceans, mm -hmm. yes, to use their uh, zoological names. Chris just likes calling them all crabs. Crabs. Yeah. yeah. He's a crab fan. All crabs. Um, now, as far as insects go, the smallest insect is, can you guess what kind of insect it is? Ooh, is it a type of flea? No. A gnat? No. Is it a midgy? No. A gnat? It's a Beetle. Of course. Of course, of it course is. it's a beetle. Of course it's um, a beetle. There are so many beetles. Yeah, One in four animals is a beetle, yeah, so of course yeah. the yeah, smallest animal is a beetle. more species of beetle than just about everything else put together. So, yeah, a quarter of all animal species, uh, of all described animal species are beetles. Um, so the smallest beetle is only one third of a millimetre in size. So that's smaller, wow. than, the, uh, smaller than the tardigrade. Um, so how, how big is a tardigrade? About half a, half a millimetre. All right. So, so you could see a tardigrade with your eye. You, well, yeah, you could probably make it out, but you might not be able to distinguish it from okay. its surroundings because they're kind of see-through-y, sort of. They don't really have a colour. Um, but the smallest uh, beetle is also the smallest free-living insect. Oh. So that's actually an important thing. Um, as we go down in size from the smallest beetle, which is called Skydacella musawasensis, uh, we get into animals which are not free-living. That is, they rely on other creatures to help them get along. Uh, in other words, they are parasites. Ooh. And this parasitic life cycle allows them to get by with fewer functioning body parts, basically. Oh, that's a trick, So isn't they've it? just yeah. left things behind. Well, they've yeah, adapted them away so that we don't need legs. Who needs legs? Who needs so leg when I've yeah. got this whole body that's yeah, when warm I can just and lovely? suck on this juicy yeah. fish or whatever. <laughs> Who needs whatever. a digestive system when I can, yeah. Yeah, suck on someone else's digestive system. Yeah. Mm, mm. Charming. Um, but it does 
allow them to get really small. So these animals are never found on their own. They're always found uh, as freeloaders on some kind of host, uh, which uh, gives them a home and usually some kind of food source as well. Um, so within the arthropods, we have a couple of parasitic crustaceans. One is called uh, Stigotantulus stocki, which lives on the outside of tiny shrimp. Wow. So the tiny shrimp are only a couple of millimetres long, and these guys live on those shrimp, on the outside of those shrimp, in, in salt and fresh water. Um, they measure about 0.1 millimetres or 100 micrometres or 100 microns. Um, but they are bitten by an even smaller shrimp, which grows to only 85 microns oh. in size. Uh, never emerges from its parent. That's how small it is. It stays inside its parent and starts feeding on the same place that its parent was feeding on. So has it got small children big. inside it? Well, they grow bigger and sort of bust out of the parent what? over time. It's pretty gross. Oh. Yeah. Um, Sounds like a weird life cycle. Like Russian dolls that are kind of continually expanding. <laughs> they can't. They can't get much smaller, but they sort of. They do. They 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 have a body part which is like a sack which expands as it gets full of little baby parasites, which oh, then expand kind of, and yeah, they just keep efficient. expanding and busting out of their parents. Um, so that's pretty small for an animal, eighty-five microns. But let's be honest, not a very exciting life. Um, but it's not the smallest animal science has found. The smallest is something that would probably be hard to recognize an animal these tiny shrimp at least have little legs and they look sort of shrimp like um this is something from the mixozoa meaning slime or mucus animals mixozoa that's what the name means uh they're a, a class of cnidarians oh cnidarian cnidarians that's so c-n-i-d isn't it yes c-n-i-d-a R-I-A-N-S. That's a phylum of animals that includes jellyfish and corals and sea anemones. Uh, and all the h hard things to pronounce, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just put all these difficult to pronounce yeah. things in the cnidaria. Um, so the tiny mixozoa, the whole uh, class doesn't get bigger than 20 microns in size. And the smallest are called mixobolus shekel. Oh, and you brought one in today, Stu. Yeah, can you see it? Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't see it because it's only 8.5 microns in size. Tiny. It's 0 0.0085 of a millimetre. You would not be able to see that. Even some really good microscopes would not be able to pick that up. Um, so you'd probably have to magnify it hundreds and hundreds of times to be able to see this. Um, but these are not free-living creatures. They're a parasitic animal that live in two hosts throughout their life cycle. So at least they get to see a bit of the world. Uh, as they pass through life, not like the uh, the tiny shrimp that never leave their parents. Yeah, but they're, they're, I'm still blown away because they're parasites, but they're parasites of their parent. So no, their parents just die, nested. and they just sort of grow up, and their parents. Their parents are parasitizing something else. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the two hosts that this uh, mixobolus shekel. Uh, one is a fish, the northern pike, which swims around you know, quite long distances. The other is a kind of moss worm, which is a sea creature which just looks like a little thing of moss that just crawls around and doesn't really go very far. So they sort of transfer back and forth between the two um, hosts. So it seems like, though, to get really small, this, this thing basically looks like uh, a little cross, but it's multicellular. It's just lost nearly all of its uh, animal-like 
appendages and it's basically just a tube feeds at one end waste comes out at the other and it's sort of like a cross shape so it can grip onto things but um it seems like to get really small animals have to give up their independence to some degree they're not very motile these things um but of course and you know this is the smallest one we know of but there may be smaller animals out there we just haven't really looked closely enough to find them and if you're looking for sort of parasites, you would have to be looking pretty closely and assume Inside something. that they were there to begin with. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not even going to find them. So keep looking. There might be something even smaller out there and you can name it after something. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.